0: Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message.
1: For the next few weeks, we're going to talk and dive into a collection of books You've probably skipped right over in your Bible reading. They contain difficult names like Habakkuk. They contain names like Haggai. They contain names like Malachi, the great Italian prophet. Malachi, of course, Malachi that we see there to conclude our Old Testament, speaks about the healing nature of God's love. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. But in the Hebrew Bible, the 12 minor prophets constitute what we call the last part of the Old Testament But in Hebrew language, they constitute one book. That one book is often referred to as the 12. We often say the 12, and we think 12 disciples. To a Jewish mind, they don't think disciples. To the 12 is the 12 minor prophets, or they would say the 12 tribes of Israel. We could often say that the minor prophets is the book of the 12. Most people skip right over them. Most people move right beyond them because first, they're called minor so you think, well, how important can they actually be? They're minor. Second, they sound pretty gloomy and doomy. If you follow us on social media, you saw that I put out a, a, a information this week to go ahead and read the book of Hosea. Not sure if Pastor Chad will do that next week, as, but, but I will certainly the following week. I'll have you read through the the, the minor prophet that we'll be looking on. And if you began to read, read through Hosea over the last few days, what you saw, you may become across that reality. It can be a little gloomy and doomy when you read the minor prophet's But these 12 books are not called minor because they are unimportant, they're called minor because they are short. And we all like short things, right? Prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, prophets like Daniel, prophets like uh, Ezekiel, they wrote these long books, but the minor prophets were more like uh, the most read blog posts of the, the, the old age, okay? They were the ones that we, they were the circulating Facebook articles. And they were repeated, by the way, over and over and over again. The minor prophets would have been repeated. But they were mostly written after Israel had turned her back on God. And in them, then God, through the minor prophets, lays out his plan of redemption for Israel. He points them to a coming Messiah who would heal and redeem what their sin had totally messed up. Now, the good news in that for you is that if you're in here because you have your life in some misery from some decisions you've made that have been dumb, and I think we all have made some dumb decisions in life, or maybe you're in here and you want to know how to put back together a life that sin has totally seemed to eradicate or destroy or, or, or bring destruction to, or you even want to know how to pursue healing in relationships that have been broken in your life, then guess what? These books are for you. The Minor Prophets are written specifically for you. Plus, like I told you before, if you're a Christian, one day in heaven, one day in the kingdom, you're going to be sure to run into Nahum, you're going to run into Habakkuk, and they're going to say, hey, how'd you like my book? And if you've never read it, it's going to be embarrassing, and it's going to be very awkward to know that it was in God's inspired scripture and they're asking you eye to eye and you're able to tell them, no, I didn't. So what I'm gonna do, what Pastor Chad's gonna do is we're gonna solve you or, or, or try to save you, if I should say, from that kind of embarrassment, okay? That kind of awkwardness. Hosea. It's the first of the 12 because he sets the stage for all that's to come after him. I'll be honest with you, I was going to preach out of Joel and Amos. Amos talks about the unpopular love of God in culture. Joel talks about the one step more we are to take. But I just found myself unable to do so. Hosea starts the book of the 12 because Hosea speaks of the fountain of the love of God. There's no way to rightly appropriate and understand any other minor prophet until we begin to clearly understand the love of God as revealed in this book. In his book, Hosea's book, he gives us one of the most bizarre yet riveting illustrations of what God's love for his people actually looks like. It is downright scandalous. God's love is downright scandalous. Before we get to it, let me get to it through a story of my own. It was April 2016. We had relaunched the church for about nine months and ten months, and we were here for Resurrection Sunday. We were having two gatherings in the second gathering, Pastor Chad began to preach. I was standing in the back of the room, and I noticed on the back row there were four or five friends, African-American brothers, who uh, were very large in size, very, very large. One looked incredibly buff. One had these traps on the side here that were like higher than his earlobes. They connected to the to the shoulders, and he had these huge shoulders and back muscles and biceps. And I remember looking at him and thinking, man, that dude is a buff dude. I mean, that is a piece of work. And uh, <clears throat> great specimen. And uh, I was standing there in the back, and it got done to the end of the sermon, and Pastor Chad asked for salvation. And two of them, including this one guy, raised his hand, and Pastor Chad asked them to come forward, and they come forward, and I came forward with these brothers, and I stood here in the altar, and I prayed with him. I laid my hands on him, and I asked him. I said uh, specifically what was going on, and I don't know about you, but I, I look when when I look at somebody and I recognize them, the first thing I think is. Um, I think they're in somehow in ministry relationship, right? And so normally what I do is I just jump straight in. Hey, how are you doing? You know, how things good? You know, like, you know, because I want them, if they know me already, you know, I've got to act like I know them already. And then he's looking at me. It's like, hi there. You know, I'm like, well, obviously maybe I don't know him. He just looks familiar in some other way. So the gatherings get done. I go out in the lobby and, um, and I totally, totally start chewing on my big toe, mustard, ketchup, mayonnaise and all, right? I'm standing out there in the lobby and I I go up to this man, and I say to him, I said, you know, what's going on, you know, and introduced himself, and, uh, and I didn't, I I said, you know, know, you've got to, with your stature and physical stature, you've got to play football, he said, yeah, I'll play football, and I said, really, I said, where do you play football, and he said, "Uh, I say, I I play in Atlanta, and I said, oh, so, like, one of those semi-pro teams, you know, like, one of those, like, like one of those, you know, like you put the pads on, you play. Is it like, is there girls involved in the league too? You know, because they have that up in Tennessee. They have this this intercoed league, right? And so I'm thinking like, you know, and he's like, no, Atlanta. And when he said Atlanta, it hit me. I'm looking at the fifth pick of the previous year's NFL draft, Vic Beasley Jr., who came from Clemson University, who is here on Easter, who literally about set the sack record league that year in the NFL as as his first year as a defensive end, 44 for the Atlanta Falcons. And everything I could do, I tried to get out of that conversation. I'm getting back. I'm trying to reel as quickly as I can backwards, right? I mean, I just felt like overwhelming sense of group If you understand what I mean, right? We had this great conversation. Of course, I'm not trying to say that you know he's the best NFL player of all time. Although I still love our Atlanta Falcons, we need some great help. I just coming to say all that to say that when when it comes to celebrities, when we get around them, a lot of us we don't know how to act. Right? I met. I met uh, Ted Diabasi, Brett the Hitman Hard. I met the giant at Planet Hollywood in Nashville as a kid. And I, I got the little placemat and a pen, And I went over to him after he ate three plates of burgers. And I went over to him and said, man, I've got to get your, you know, WCW, WWF fans, come on, back in the day. And I got the fa- the pen and, and had him write. But we don't know how to act sometimes when it comes to celebrities. We become groupies. Everybody say groupie. <coughs> groupies are people who pay a lot of attention to a celebrity who doesn't pay them any attention at all. A groupie is a person who pays a lot of attention to a celebrity who doesn't pay them any interest or attention back. They're paying attention to someone who's not paying attention to them. Some people are like that with movie stars. Some people are like that with singers. There's a lot of young teenage girls today that are in love with Ryan Gosling or Bruno Mars or Brandon Murphy. And you adults, you don't judge, right? Some of you ladies, you were in middle school and you were convinced. You were convinced you were going to marry Donnie from New Kids on the Block. Some of you adults, you were convinced you were going to marry JTT in Home Improvement. Jonathan Taylor Thomas, you were going to go to the concert and you were going to stand in line with all the other girls wearing two tops and parachute pants, and you were going to stand there, and when he walked by, you would scream, I love you, Donnie, and all of a sudden that his ears would catch, you know, your voice, and your hope was that he would turn to you, and he would lock eyes, and you have a moment of enchantment, and he would say, you got the right stuff, baby, and you're the reason I wrote this song. And then you were going to get married, and you were going to move to Malibu. But unless your name is Kim Faye or Jenny McCarthy or whoever he's married to now, I don't keep up with Donnie anymore. That never happened. Instead, you married Phil from accounting. He's a responsible man who's a slightly overweight. He's balding, and he wears penny loafers. And now you probably look at middle school girls dreaming about Bieber or Timberlake And you think, sorry, sweetheart, it ain't ever going to happen. And maybe you even say that with a little hint of bitterness. (laughs) But that's okay because part of discipling the next generation is teaching them to live on planet earth. But life is too short to be a groupie. Life is too short to be a groupie. A groupie expresses inordinate amounts of love towards someone who shows no interest in him one of the most mind-blowing things in Scripture is that we see God taking the posture of a groupie with the sinful human race. He's a groupie for humans. God's a groupie. He shows an inordinate amount of interest in people who never have interest for Him, who never pay attention to Him, who never open up their hearts to him, who never listen to him, who never keep their eyes on him. Now, not, of course, in the way that God is enamored with our greatness, but in the sense that we see from the first pages of Genesis to the last chapters of Revelation, we see God reaching out incessantly to a group of people who pay him little attention, which brings us to the book of Hosea. Hosea gives us the most mind-blowing view of the love of God and one that I think, quite honestly, in our human reasoning, is too impossible to really believe. Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. Let's begin. Hosea has, he goes down in history as the man who receives the worst ministry assignment ever. He said in Hosea 1 and 2, when the Lord first began to speak to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, go and marry a prostitute and have children with her. Now, you ministry students in the room, how would you like to get that assignment upon graduation? All your friends are getting assigned to ministry positions, churches, teaching posts, And you're told to go and marry a prostitute who will continue practicing prostitution. That's the assignment he was given. And he says, why do I give you this assignment? Because this will illustrate how you, Israel, acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. See, understand, church, (coughs) spiritual adultery is the primary biblical illustration of sin. It's the most gripping analogy because few things tear your heart out as much as a spouse who commits adultery against you. It's gotta be the most painful thing. Adultery is a betrayal of love. Adultery is when you give to someone else what you should only find in your spouse. Interestingly enough, one of the primary sins that God identifies in Israel is that she consistently looks to other nations for help instead of her own God. Look at chapter five and verse 13 says the exact same thing, that Israel kept on looking for other nations. (coughs) if you can give me that water, (coughs) when Israel and Judah saw how sick they were, Israel turned to Assyria. Thank you, brother, so much. They were were constantly looking to other nations. This was a a betrayal of love. When Israel felt afraid, when Israel faced financial worries, rather than turning to God, they ran to Egypt, they ran to Assyria, they ran to somewhere else, and they said, you gotta help us. We need your help. Now, that may not sound that immoral, but see, something else had replaced God as their trust. Listen to me, church. Our primary sin is that we let other things take the place that God alone is supposed to occupy in our hearts. That's our primary sin. That God is supposed to occupy every place in our heart, and we allow other things to occupy those places. So ask yourself this morning where do you turn when you are worried? Where do you turn when you're worried? For example, you're in here and you're single and you really want to be married. Do you patiently look to God doing things his way? Or do you think take things into your own hands and do them your way? Like, for instance, we have people who come to this church every week who are living with someone that they're not married to. And the reason they're doing that is because they don't want to do it God's way. So they've taken matters into their own hands. And the primary, primary immorality here is not premarital sex. Do you know what the primary immorality is? It's the refusal to trust God with a future spouse. That's the primary immorality. It's not just the actions we take. Where do you turn when you're stressed? Where do you turn when you're stressed? Do you turn to alcohol? Can you not wait till you get home so you can take a drink? Men, where do you turn when you're stressed? Is it a hobby that you indulge in at the expense of your own family? Is it shopping? Do you go and run up the credit cards to do all that you can? Is it food? Do you eat out of emotional binging to do all that you can to to fill a void? The primary sin is not the drunkenness. The primary sin is not the spending money. The primary sin is not the hobby you're doing or the excess spending. The primary sin is in the fact that you turn to something else for comfort besides God who promises comfort. (coughs) That is the sin. Or one more. Take your finances. What do you look most to for financial security? You know one of the reasons why God makes such a big deal about tithing your first fruits back to God 10% is because it reveals who or what you really trust with your future. When you tithe, you're saying to God, I trust God with my financial future. Do you think God asks us to tithe and give because he needs our money? God doesn't need our money. And listen, God's not testing your generosity. He's not doing that. He's not testing your generosity. That's not what God's doing. We are supposed to trust God with our future, which means that we joyfully give away 10% as a way of saying, I trust you, God, to take care of me. Who do you trust for your security? Do you trust your own money, or do you trust God for your security? But if you trust in money for your future security, of course, you will never be able to give money away, because that's what you depend on for the future. So you know whether or not you trust God for the future or your money for the future, depending on what you do with the money. It's that simple. There's no other way to get around it. No other way, scripture, to get around it. Do I trust God with my future? Do I trust money with my future? And when you say that, you really reveal the real immorality. And what is that? The real immorality is not holding or withholding 10%. The real immorality is that, you tr- that, that the trust you should be putting to God, you've put into money. And you, like Israel, have been running down to Egypt and Assyria asking for foreign gods to help you financially. And God wants to be the source. He wants to be Elion. I told you, my pastor friend, he had a couple in his church come up to him and said, "Uh, we just don't know about this tithing thing yet. And he said, here, I'll make you a deal. He said, I want you to write at the beginning of the month 10% of what you make, your gross income. He said, I want you to give the check to the church, write it to the church, I'll go put it in my desk. And at the end of the month, if you don't have enough money, to be able to cash that check. I won't cash it. I'll come back to you at the end of the month and I'll say, you know what? I'm gonna give this back to you. That way the check won't bounce. And they said, okay, that sounds pretty good. And he said, shame on you. You'll give your money to a man and a person and invest in him, but you won't do it to a God of the universe and believe that he cannot give back more than men can ever give. See, we trust men with our money more than God. It's a lack of trust. That's the real immorality. That's the immorality. God was to be our joy. God was to be our delight. God was to be our confidence. God was to be our trust. But Israel, like the prostitute, sought those things in something or someone else, and our betrayal of God broke his heart. So God says to Hosea, I want to illustrate that to everyone. So go love a woman who will be unfaithful to you. Now listen, he didn't just go through the formalities. He didn't just say, oh, I'll get a wife, but I won't sleep with her. I won't love her. I won't affirm her. No, he doesn't go just through the informalities. Hosea goes, verse three, went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. Follow the scripture with me. To make matters worse, the girl's name is Gomer. If you're looking for biblical names for your daughter, I would not suggest Gomer. Okay? I only know of one Gomer, and it was a dude. And he was a goofy, goofy Marine guy on Gomer Pyle. He's a private. So Hosea doesn't just go through the formalities. He generally tried to love her and start a family with her. But shortly thereafter, (coughs) Gomer returns to her old ways. Look at verse 5, chapter 2. She goes back to her prostitution. And in chapter 2, verse 5, he says, she said to him, I will again go after my own lovers. (coughs) She's saying to him, I'm going to go after my own lovers. And here's the crazy part. She does it in broad daylight where everyone asks, isn't that Hosea's wife? That prostitute there, isn't that Hosea's wife? And eventually she leaves Hosea for some man who pays her for sex. To make matters worse, the new guy abuses her, destroys her. Hosea pleads with her, come back, come back, come back, come back, Gomer, but she won't, insanely, she won't come back. Verse 8, chapter 2. He even gives the man that she's living with money to take care of her. He goes to the man who has, who is destroying her, and says, "Hey, just take care of her needs, please. Why she's a sex slave? Just please take care of her needs. Just and she is now being supported by the husband, her husband, through the vessel of the one abusing her. That's what's happening. He's giving resource." Eventually, this new lover gets so tired of her that he tries to sell her back into the sex slave trade, and God appears to Hosea with a second assignment. Chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Go again. Everybody say, Go again. Go again and love this woman who is an adulteress. Keep in mind, will you, that Hosea is a real person. Hosea is just like you and me. What had to be going through his mind? Buy her back, God? Are you serious? Like, God, she humiliated me. After giving her everything, after buying her for the first time, she scorned me, she embarrassed me. Why would I go after her again? But God was trying to make a point. Look at verse one. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, (coughs) though they turn to other gods. And so Hosea went to the auction. If you read commentators, they make this very clear. Scholars say Gomer would have been stripped naked Hosea would have walked into an auction with his wife, nude. Potential buyers would see what they're getting. Potential buyers would be surrounding about her, leering at her, staring at her to see what they're bidding on. And here in the midst of a crowd of men who only want to take advantage of her body stands Hosea, Hosea who just wants to love her, who wants to clothe her, who wants to protect her, who wants to give her dignity and provide for her needs. And Hosea is in the gut-wrenching, heart-wrenching process of pursuit of a wife who will not keep paying him attention. Which leads me to the first reflection on the love of God. God's love scandalizes us. God's love scandalizes us. Any of us in Hosea's situation would have felt perfectly justified in walking away from that marriage. Sometimes I hear people, they say things like this. How could God have the audacity to judge us as humans as if God's anger towards us and our sin is too harsh? But anytime we are put in the position similar to what he's in, We rage with righteous anger. Our spouse does that to us? We rage. And yet God kept coming for us. God keeps coming for us. What Hosea was doing, by the way, was not required by Hebrew law. Can I make that point? In Leviticus chapter 20, God said that a man in that situation could divorce his wife, get people around her, and then he could have his wife stoned for her unfaithfulness. And yet, it was a divinely di- appointed loophole. But you know what God's not looking for when he pursues us? He's not looking for loopholes to get out of it. No, he ain't looking for loopholes. He's not going after, I, 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 I don't really want to do it. No, I want to do it at all costs. I'm not looking for loopholes. And his love drove him beyond the legal requirements of the law. That's Christianity love driving us beyond what's even expected. He could have very easily walked away. I'm going to turn from it and faithfully and fully justified, yet inexplicably, inexplicably God set his love on us. 11, uh, chapter 11, Hosea chapter 11, verse 8 might be my favorite verse in the Old Testament. He said, oh, how? Oh, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? My heart is torn within me. My God, look at that verse. How in the world can I do it? I love that verse because it shows something absolutely staggering about the love of God. God has so united his heart with us that he can't let us go. God who created all the sun, moon, and stars, yet he is in love with you, you personally. God who loves and created all of the world. He created earth, which is a a planet, which is only a speck of dust in the midst of a a bunch of other specks of dust and you are a speck of dust on top of that speck of dust in one city that's a speck of dust and a speck of dust called a nation and yet God says, you know what? I am uniting myself with my scandalous love to come after you. I recently talked with a theologically minded young man. He didn't like us singing the song. What a beautiful name it is. The reason being because there's a phrase in it. The phrase in that song says, you didn't want heaven without us. And he came to me and he said, "Uh, it makes God sound needy. I don't like that. You didn't want heaven without us. It makes God sound like he has needs. Like God needs us to be happy. And I understand the concern, but go back to that verse. How can I give you up? How can I let you go? I don't want to be God if I'm God without you. That's the position of the gospel. How can I let you go? How can I give you up Israel? And according to this verse, God has so bound up his happiness in ours and then that how you feel when you love someone. I told my wife the other day, I don't know if I'm if I'm going by fathering terms I'll ever be happy ever again in my life. Now that't that sounds sadistic, but listen to me. I have three kids now. As a father, I can only be happy, as happy as the happiness of the lowest level of happiness in my children. And I will never be happier beyond that. That's what fathers do. They're bound up in the happiness of their children. They have united themselves fully to their children. Never be happy again? This is how God feels about us. But what's amazing is that we weren't his children. <laughs> we were his enemies. In the, the, the book of Ephesians, the Bible says we were children of wrath. Listen, for God to go after us isn't like God, isn't like me going after one of my daughters, God forbid one day if they turn if she turns her back on our family. God going after us is like welcoming, is like me welcoming a murder of one of my daughters into my family to become my son. That's the love. Theologian J.I. Packer said these words by his own free voluntary choice. He didn't have to do it. God will not know perfect and unmixed happiness again until he has brought every one of his children to heaven. He's united his happiness with ours. I've heard it compared to adoption. Some of you in the adoption process, when a family adopts, it's not that they were unhappy before they adopted the child. By the way, if you are unhappy before you adopt the child, that's no reason to adopt the child. Let's make that clear. You never need to adopt a child because you're unhappy in your marriage or the fact that you don't have kids, no. But from that point forward, when a family adopts a child, they bind their happiness to the happiness of that child. I won't be happy until that child's happy. And in one sense, the friend who came to me after church was right. God didn't need us. God was happy before he made us. But, but and, and we would have never been justified, uh, we would have been justified had he destroyed us, if, if you will, after, he, after we had sinned. But God so wrapped up his emotions in our pain that he could not be happy until we were happy. God's love scandalizes us. Here's the second thing I learned about God's love. God's love, number two, eviscerated him. Sorry for the SAT word, but I couldn't think of another word. I had no other words. You know what eviscerated means? It tears your heart out. God's love tore Hosea's heart out of his chest. God's love eviscerates us. What do you mean? Purchasing Gomer the second time evidently broke Hosea financially. I've preached from Hosea several times. I came across something in preparation for this one that I've never come across before the financial cost it took of Hosea. Say, Craig, what do you mean? Here's how I know it decimated him financially. Go to chapter three, verse two. Look at the scripture says. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a purchase of barley and a lethic of barley. Scholars say that 30 shekels was the going price of a slave in those days. So the fact that Hosea could only come up with 15 Shekels. He had to pay the rest in kind. What does that mean? It indicates he didn't have the rest, so he paid everything he had financially, and then he gave everything else he could find to his possession. So he didn't have 30 shekels of silver. He had 15 shekels of silver, and then he paid the rest in kind. He emptied his savings account. Who, of course, does this point forward to? This point's forward to Jesus. Who was not financially eviscerated, but literally eviscerated to save us. He poured out his own blood so we could be restored. He poured out that which he didn't have an endless supply of, and that was his life. He poured out all of it. Why? Because reconciliation always comes at a great cost. Listen to me, marriages in this room. Truth. Truth is the most costly thing for your marriage, but truth alone is the only thing that will heal your marriage. Listen to me. Reconciliation never comes at a minimal price. It comes at the full price, at the highest price. One of my pastor friends, he said he was born to a single mom who was a drug addict. He said, my grandmother pled with my mom to stop because she was destroying not her own life, but now destroying her son's life as a drug addict. Eventually, it became clear, he said that my mom was not able to gonna change her ways or take care of me, so he said my grandmother in her 80s had a choice. My grandmother in her 80s could have, number one, she could have turned my mom in, d whatever, cops, 911. Number two, she could have put us up, our, my, me and my siblings, for fostering her adoption. Number three, she could have cut her daughter off, and she would have been justified. Number four, it it, it, she could have, she could have ton, totally turned her out of her life, but it would have removed the possibility of reconciliation. It would remove that possibility. And so my grandmother didn't want to remove the possibility of reconciliation from her mom. So in her late 70s, she took us in and she kept the lines of communication open. And this grandmother, who didn't think at 70 years old, I should be taking in grandkids again, did it. And she prayed for my mom. And eventually after over 10 years, God broke through to my mom. My mom got off drugs. I was restored to her. And our family is reconciled because my poor grandmother literally held the door of reconciliation and redemption open. She opened up her arms like Jesus and she absorbed the pain of sin in her family and she kept the door wide open so that her own daughter could come back to the reconciling grace and power of God. That is precisely what Jesus did on the cross. He opened up his arms. He took the consequences of a sin in his body. He held the gates of heaven open for us if we would just receive it. There's coming a day and that day is sooner than later. He's closing his arms. And the day for us to have entrance into heaven closes. But right now, that day is wide open. And Jesus is forever holding open his arms as a posture to say, all you've got to do is receive my grace. All you've got to do is ask for my love to feel your life, to repent of your sin, to place saving faith in me. What a price he paid. The cat of nine tails that ripped his flesh, the nails that went through his radius and ulna, the crown of thorns on his head. That's what he went through. Why? Because He didn't want heaven without us. The only way to respond to that love, church, is total response. You can reject him as a phony and a fraud, and you can walk away. Or you can fall down on your knees in adoration and surrender the only response you cannot have is boredom and 90 plus percent of American Christians are bored with his love because they've never really felt it. They've never really understood it. The only any appropriate response to that love is boredom. I have way more respect for people who call Jesus a fraud and turn from him than I do for someone who says they've experienced it and are bored with it. But please... Do not patronize God with half-hearted commitment or lethargic worship because he's worthy of so much more than that. God's love scandalizes us. God's love eviscerated him. Number three, God's love persists until the end. God's love persists until the end. Craig, what do you mean? Chapter three, verse one is the recurring theme of Hosea. Go again, go again, go again. Love this woman who is an adulteress. And again, and again, and again. Go again, go again, go again, go again, and again, and again, and again. Don't give up on her because I'm not going to give up on you either, Hosea. Go again, go again. Throughout the book of Hosea, understand this. I can't go through every chapter, but I wanted to give you a whole scope of the book. The book of Hosea points to two events. Everybody say two events. One is in the past. One is in the future. That's what the whole book does as examples of God's salvation. The first event that it points to is the one in the past. What one in the past does it look back to where God redeemed redeemed Israel out of slavery to foreign gods from Egypt? How did he he redeem and, and deliver Israel? He did through the blood of the Passover lamb. You remember this, right? The blood on the doorpost, the death plague, right? And so he delivered Israel out of her bondage in Egypt. Hosea says that serves as the pattern of how he will deliver his people in the future. I never saw this again either. Scripture is just, this is magnificent, folks. This is just the kind of stuff. This is just magnificent. In and, and Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, he says, I've, Out of Egypt I've called my son. Out of Egypt I've called my son. Do you know what that is? That's pointing back to a redemption issue that took place in the Passover, but what happens in Matthew chapter two, verse 15. Matthew quotes Hosea and this prophecy as being fulfilled when Joseph and Mary had to take Jesus down to Egypt just shortly after Jesus was born, because Herod was trying to kill every baby under two years old. And several months, maybe years we're not for sure, later God brought Jesus back out of Israel. So he says, you hadn't past redemption, but when my son comes out of Egypt, I'm going to do a whole second type of saying. I saved you once Israel but I'm going to come again and the way that you'll know my saving is coming is my son's going to come up out of Egypt we see this in the person of Jesus this is the sign God is redeeming again it's amazing a prophecy amazing prophecy but the takeaway for you is this God did not give on, give up on Israel when he failed him and when she failed him. And Hosea, he says, I redeemed you the first time. You forgot about me, but I'm coming back for you. And this time I'm not gonna purchase you with lamb's blood on a doorpost. This time, I'm gonna pour out my blood on a cross. And this, my friends, is how God continues to feel about you. Is it hard to believe this in seasons of your life? Yes. This pastor would admit it is hard. When you're suffering, it is hard. It's hard. But this is how God feels about you. When you fall back into his sin, God says to his son, Go again, Jesus. Go again, Jesus go again, Jesus. When you forget him, he says, go again, Jesus, go again, son. When you turn your back on him, go again, son, go again, son. When you fall back into the same sins God delivered you from in 2002, go get him again, son, go get him again, son. When you go back into the sin of your past, go get him again, son, go get him again, son. When you're feeling the pain and the heartache that comes from stupid, sinful choices you made, go again, son, go again, son, go again, Jesus. Go again, son, go again. I will never, ever give up on you. And some of you ask, what if I keep rejecting him? Oh, yeah, yeah. He won't force himself on you. Scripture says we can harden our hearts to him and reject him. But you listen to me. Listen to me, friend. The last voice you will ever hear as you step off into the abyss of eternity is God saying, you don't have to do that. Just turn back to me. Do I believe God does that to the very last moment of a person's life? Yes, I do. You don't have to do that. All you have to do is look up. And if you'll look up, He stands ready to receive you. Even right now, He does. Right now, Jesus stands ready to receive you in this moment. Listen to me. Listen to me. If you're a Christian in this room, you, you listen to me. Your sin, your bad habits, your struggles, your, pre- your past, your... None of those things can send you to hell. The only thing that can send you to hell is your unwillingness to look up and receive grace. Your sin cannot send you to hell because he already paid for it. The only thing that can send you to hell is your unwillingness to look up. Your unwillingness to receive grace. grace is there. We just have to look, look upwards. Where Jesus says, I've set you free. Number four, God's love is power, not reward. God's love is power, not reward. Don't miss that Hosea's love was offered to this woman while she was a prostitute, and again, while she was an adulterer. She didn't have to free herself from prostitution. She didn't have to clean herself up in order to merit his love. He offered it to her unconditionally, freely, while she was a prostitute. And listen to me, church. If you hadn't heard anything I've said, listen to me. This teaches us how we can escape the bondage of sin. If you're in this room and you have a bondage of sin in your life, most people think they got to clean themselves up, make a bunch of changes, and then God will receive them. Do all that I can to change myself, then God will receive me. No, no, no. In Christianity, acceptance And forgiveness and unconditional love come first. Change comes second. Change never comes before love. Change never comes before acceptance. Change never comes before the gospel. One of the most riveting examples of this is Jesus' own life. He encountered a woman in the act of adultery in John chapter 11. She's having... Uh, adultery with a male. The male is not brought out. The Pharisees bring out the woman. They drag her out half clothed. Jesus encounters his own Gomer. This is a Gomer right here. This is what's so amazing about John. John's trying to, he's trying to give a New Testament version of Hosea. And so John tells the New Testament version of Hosea, here comes Gomer. Gomer comes out in front of Jesus. And what does Jesus do? You know the text. Jesus says, all right, whoever does not have any sin, you throw the first stone. Well, all of them drop the rocks and they leave. Now we think it's all good then. But that's not good. The text is supposed to create tension in you because there's one person now with her who's not created sin. And now we see that he can kill her. Jesus has every right biblically to now kill her. He's the only one without sin. He can cast the stone. And what does he say to her? Where are your accusers, sister? She said, there are no more. And he said to her in John chapter 8, verse 11, the most cogent gospel statement in the gospels and the reason it's so cogent is not because of what he said, it's the order of how he says it he says to her in John chapter 8 verse 11, he says neither do I condemn you go and sin no more You know what makes that so powerful? Is every time we encounter a sinner, we most always, by default, take the order the other way. We say, go and sin no more, and then I won't condemn you. Go and don't do it again to me, and then I won't condemn you. Jesus said, no. He said, I don't condemn you, so go and sin no more. God's love is the power that liberates us from captivity, not the reward for having liberated ourselves. God's love does not come after, after we've changed. Listen, we have no power to change if we don't feel warm acceptance. And Jesus knew she could never turn from the adultery of her present until she felt the warm embrace of a father. What do you mean, Craig? The reason we sin is because we feel like we're missing something, and we are. It's the eternal love of God for which you were created. You know what that verse does? It changes the way I talk to teenage girls in my life. And and it's not, yeah, teenage girls in terms of counseling, right? When I talk to teenage girls, I'm sorry, moms and dads, but it doesn't do any good. It doesn't. I've been in 12 years of student ministry. It doesn't do any good to talk about diseases, pregnancy, and the consequences of pregnancy. I'm cool with the systems and school systems talking about abstinence, but that's not what's going to change her. What's going to change her is to talk about a heavenly father and the love of God who loved her long before her ever father ever abandoned her. So I don't care what you teach a girl about the physical part or about not doing it. If she has a heart that's devoid of the love of God, then she will never, ever, ever not allow that young man to place his hands on her and do whatever he wants to her because she's willing to pay a high price because she's so hungry and so empty. So it changes the way I talk to young teenagers. When I talk to young teenage boys and they're going through pornography, it does me no good to talk to a young man who's doing with pornography about the sin. I could, I could go to him and say it's going to affect your marriage, and it will affect his marriage, but it does no good. It won't do any good. What I have to do first and foremost is go to him and say, son, do you understand that you have a heavenly father who loves you and he gave his blood for you to be a man of God? And he gave his blood for you to be a man of God with courage and nobility and honor so that you can say no to sin and stand upright to Jesus and stand upright in this perverse generation. And when the love of God fills his heart, then he has power to change. We have no power to change until we feel warm embrace. The gospel is that in Christ, God offers you complete forgiveness. Jesus took the penalty of it all. In the gospel, God offers you His righteousness. He not only takes away your sin, He gives you a position of righteousness. It's all a gift. It's what we call gift righteousness. Everybody say gift righteousness. It'll give you the power to change. It's like a gift. God gives us gift righteousness. Martin Luther, one of my theological heroes, he talked about how much... In his early life, he hated the phrase, the righteousness of God. If you read his writings, he hated it so bad because he thought it was the standard which God judged him. So he said, every time I read about the righteousness of God, I hated it. I despised it. He said it created a hatred towards God in my heart. But he said, quote, at last, by the mercy of God, I began to understand in Scripture that the righteousness of God with which the merciful God justifies us by faith is a righteousness he gives us. Here I felt that I was altogether born again, and I entered paradise itself through the open gates. He said that freedom, when I understood that the rights of God had nothing to do with what I did, but the fact that I repented and put faith in Jesus, and Jesus became, the righteous, became sin for me, that I might become the righteous of God in Him. He said that replaced hatred for God in my heart with love for God, and it has snapped every attraction to idols in my heart. And he said, the gospel of God's grace did in my heart what no law could ever do. It changed my heart. See, you can motivate people by guilt, but it will only result in behavior modification and not sincere, lasting change. It's the gospel and his love that transforms the heart. He went on to say, this righteousness is a free gift. None of us could ever understand. Listen to me, church. Listen to me. What I've learned is the only ones who get better in the Christian life are those who know their acceptance does not depend on them getting better. I'm going to say it again. The only ones in the Christian life who get better are the ones who know their acceptance before God does not depend on them getting better. And if you think your acceptance depends on you getting better, you won't be free and safe enough in his love to allow him to make you better. Number five, God's love turns gomers into Hosea's. Maddie, would you come? God's love turns gomers into Hosea's. God not only wanted Hosea to learn about his love for his people, he wanted him to become a giver of that kind of love. So he says to Hosea, go again. Go again, go again, go again, Hosea, because that's what I do with you every time. I come again, I come again, I come again. He wants us who have experienced his outstretched arms. He wants us. If you've experienced the outstretched arms of God through Christ Jesus, your Savior, would you raise your hand right now and just show me? So he wants us. Those of us who've experienced his outstretched arms, here's what he wants. He wants us to become the outstretched arms of Hosea. He wants us who've experienced outstretched arms to become outstretched arms. One of the phrases we say around here at DP is those who believe the gospel become like the gospel. We believe the gospel, we become like the gospel. We become the gospel personified. What do you mean, Craig? To the parent in this room who's been forsaken by their child, to the husband in this room who feels neglected, to the minority in our church who's been sidelined. To the boss who feels misunderstood, to a friend in here who's been forsaken, to the wife who's been taken for granted, I'm going to say by God's Spirit, go again. Go again, Hosea. Go again. Go again. I'm not saying that your outstretched arms will always change the gomers in your life. Sometimes gomers like the one in the story don't change. But I can guarantee you that outstretching your arms will change you. God's objective for you from the beginning. Romans 8:29, for God foreknew, those he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Why? That his son would be the firstborn among many brethren. We know that all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. Listen to me. Look, 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 look. All things work to good. All things work together for the good. Do you know who those all things are? all things in your life are also the gomers in your life who are never seemingly becoming Hosea's. God uses the gomers in your life to make you more like Jesus. Listen, even if those gomers never surrender, that's not the point. The point is that all things work together. Can you accept today that the gomers in your life are being put there by God to make you more like Jesus? So that you keep stretching your arms and 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 you keep stretching your arms. arms. This is like Jesus and you stretch your arms again, and you stretch your arms again, and you reach again, and you go again, and you go again, and you go again after the wayward child, and you go again after the wayward husband, and you go again after the friend who's backbite you and backbit you and forsaken you. Maybe your situation's not as dramatic as Hosea's, but we all have gomers in our lives, people who mistreat us, take us for granted, treat us unkindly. The gomers in your life are there to make you like Jesus. Jesus, which is the greatest plan for you. So it could be said scripturally, the goal in your life is God's greatest assignment for you right now. To make you like His son. That's painful. The Bible has what we call self-authenticating love. You know what that means? When you finally see God's love, you crave it, you desire it, and you become it. And then people realize this is not just something theoretical you believe. You become like his love. That's why it's self-authenticating. When you finally see it, you will come like it. I've never met anybody who's seen God's real love and not wanted to crave it. So Donna Gray Barnhouse said this. He said, "The, the pursuing love of God is the greatest wonder in the spiritual universe we see this love at work through the heart of Hosea, we may wonder if God is really like that. But He is. Think about it. Many years later, He would give man the ability to form the iron in the ground He formed. He would give him the ability to form that iron into nails and to fashion the trees in the field that He had created and given to Adam and Eve to create it into a cross. Then he stretched out his hands upon a tree and allowed us to nail him there. And in so doing, he took our sins upon himself. This is our God. And there's no one else like him. Amen. And when you see him, and when you see that, you'll start to become like him. You'll become a Hosea to the gomers in your life. Listen, church, if we think reaching this city and this community is going to fit into our 9-4 to four lifestyle, we are sadly mistaken living the life of a Hosea, I means you're going to wake up and you're going to walk into streets of your life that no men of God or women of God ever have any right to be there, the culture will say. And you've got to be willing to say, I'm not caring about my reputation anymore. I'm not caring whether or not somebody rejects me anymore. I'm not caring whether or not somebody thinks and deems me inappropriate anymore. You know what I'm doing? I'm a Hosea that's searching out. People say, why are you here? I don't know why I'm here other than I'm overwhelmed with the love of God for people who desperately need His hope. Uh, it'll put you in places. It'll keep you up in the middle of the night. It'll cause to do things in your heart and sacrifice that no one else in their normal right mind will seem to do. But let me tell you something, when you've been a Gomer long enough and the love of God comes after you again and again and year after year after year and saves you, you will be bent on a mission to become a Gomer to become a Hosea for every other Gomer in your life. It won't fit onto your nine to five. It won't fit into your nice, you know, neat and nice schedule, but it will cause you to say, you know what, I'm willing to sacrifice. I'm willing to reach to you. I'm willing to love you. I'm willing to care for you. I'm willing to reach out to you. Maybe the hymn writer says it best. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me. A sinner condemned unclean. He took my sins and my sorrow and he made them his very own. He bore my burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. How marvelous, how wonderful my song will ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Love of God. Come here, real quick, Zach. Where's Zach? Come here, real quick, buddy. Come here, come here, Tony. The band, you guys can come up, the rest of you. Come on, Zach. Come up here, real quick. This is Zach Parsons. You guys know him. Such an integral part of our community. is his older sister. He's got a sister between him. Unless you know his story. But I just thought about the principle of Hosea and Gomer. That when we're yet Gomers, Hosea's pursue us and interesting thing about Zach's story is while he was away from the Lord, and even Tony was away from the Lord, their middle sister had come to know the Lord, and Hosea, Desiree, their middle sister, became a Hosea to pursue after Tony. Tony became the Gomer who then became a Hosea. The Hosea then went after another Gomer, and the Gomer then becomes another Hosea in the life of this community. Gomers get turned into Hoseas to get turned into Hosea, is so I want to tell him just a little bit about your life before Christ and then what
0: your sister, what, what role she played in your life. So, um, before Christ, uh, the biggest thing I remember is that I just constantly felt alone. I remember one night being up until 5 a.m. just writing in a journal uh, by myself in the library just writing, I'm so, so alone and feeling like nobody loved me and that I was worthless um, and then um, there was always a bright moments, like in the summers when I'd come down and visit Desiree and Tony um, in Cleveland, uh, but they were like really, they were really far between and everything. And then Tony um, invited me to, to move down after I after I finished college to move down here um, and to live with her. Uh, I remember when I first got here. She had written a note to me on, on my bed Just <laughs> say how much she loved me. And I was such a hard person to love. I wasn't... I never... I, I hated talking to people. I continually just pushed her away. And looking back, I feel so bad because I just... Every time she stretched out her hand, I'd push it away, I'd stop. I wouldn't thank her or anything. But now I see that she did, she was inviting me completely into her life. That she was, I mean, what a sacrifice it would be to, it was to open your home and commit to daily living with me whenever I was... Like, I was so heavy for everybody around me. And now whenever I, like, look at other people, like, in the community and other family members that I want to reach out to, I just imagine the nights where she was just sitting on the ground on her knees crying into the carpet for me.
1: Isn't that amazing? I mean, it's something to celebrate. Now, Zachary has not just become and liberated from the Gomer situation. He's become a Hosea and is a life-giving source in this community. So the raw and realness of this is the hope and desire we have of hundreds of thousands of millions of other Gomers in our community who need Hoseas to stand in the gap. There's no way that we can say we've really encountered that love if we don't become Hosea's searching for those who need that love. There's no way. So today, I'm going to invite you to stand with me. Lift your hands to the great Hosea and allow him to commission your soul again. Allow his love to fill whatever void, whatever area of your heart that needs that feeling. But more than that, to then commission your soul to say, Lord, I want to make an impression. I want to make a mark in my point in history to become a pursuing Hosea for those who desperately need your grace.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.